Well, good morning. Uh, it's great to be here with all of you uh, this Sunday morning. Uh, I am Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at City Life. Uh, the guy who's usually up here, Dale, uh, is out of town. He is in Arkansas. He is uh, speaking at another church. Uh, they actually came out here uh, to help us with the, the Easter egg hunt, uh, if you remember those people from Arkansas. So um, he is with, excuse me, he is missed this morning, but uh, God is here nonetheless. Um, so uh, we are continuing in our series in Revelation. Um, we took a break for Easter, but we're, we're back in it now. Uh, as you may remember, we started out at the very beginning. We uh, read through the introduction. Then there were uh, seven letters to seven churches that we read through. Uh, and then we got to Revelation 5, and uh, we kind of got to see behind the veil of kind of what's going on in heaven uh, before the end. And uh, we get to get a glimpse of the throne room in heaven. Um, and then we jumped ahead a little bit, and two weeks ago we... Uh, talked about Revelation, 9, or Revelation 20, where uh, Dale talked about the final defeat of sin and evil and death, and they're all thrown into a lake of fire and are no more. Um, this week we are in Revelation 21, and uh, we get to see um, the new heaven and the new earth, and it is an amazing picture. Um, we are going to read through the first eight verses. Um, I will read that real quick, and then we will pray and get started. So Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first, earth and the, er, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out, down out of heaven from God prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. He also said, Write, because the words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we seek to enter your presence this morning as your church. God, would you come and speak to us? Would you reveal your nature and your character through your word to us? And God, would you help us to have a hope for the future, a hope of life with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, like I said, the last sermon, we saw death and Satan are defeated and are cast away into the lake of fire. Um, and then we also saw that those who had suffered for Christ's name uh, were rewarded uh, for their, their faithfulness and for their uh, seeing things through the end. So today we are looking at what heaven is going to be like in the end. Uh, 
And so for that, we have three questions um, that we're going to ask, and I believe will be at least somewhat answered. Uh, the first question, what will heaven be like? I think we've got a lot of misunderstandings and misconceptions about what heaven will be like, but I think this passage clears some things up. Uh, first of all, before I get into what Revelation says, I need to back up a little bit and give some more context of why Revelation says some of the things it says, and to give a fuller picture of what Scripture teaches. So uh, the ESV Study Bible, uh, in its study section, uh, talks about this, and it calls it the bookends of biblical theology. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 1 through 3, and then compares it to Revelation 10, uh, 20 through 22. Um, I don't have time to go through everything, but that is a really awesome study if you have some time to go back and compare those first three chapters of the Bible to the last three chapters. It's amazing to see uh, how everything comes full circle and uh, what God does in the end. So in the very beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates everything in it, and there is this beautiful harmony, and everything works the way it's supposed to work. And he prepares this garden called Eden, uh, and he prepares it for mankind so that they will have all the food they need to eat and have everything that they need to thrive and uh, live. He creates mankind in his image, unlike all the other creatures. Um, this is why we, we have things like a conscience, and this is why we actually seek after God. Um, but in the garden, uh, there is perfect peace, perfect harmony. There's no war. There's no hostility. God lives with men uh, in perfect harmony, and there's no conflict there. It even says in Genesis that God walked in the coolness of the day of the garden. Um, man, I can't imagine what that would be like to actually have the creator of the universe walking next to you. That is amazing. Um, and so God lives with them. But he also commanded them, there was a, gar there was a tree in the garden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God commanded them not to eat of it because he knew that if they ate of it that they would, they would perish, and he warned them of that. But Adam and Eve, being just like us, we don't like to listen to rules all the time. So they sinned, they broke what God had told them to do, and they ate of the tree. And at this point, everything breaks. This is where sin begins. This is the first time we have sin in the world. And, and because sin has entered the world, uh, we see shame come in. And in the beginning, Adam and Eve were naked and they weren't ashamed and like, there, were, there was no embarrassment. But uh, now they suddenly realize, oh my gosh, we need to cover up. And so they take fig leaves and, and try to cover up because they're embarrassed. We also see that fear enters the world. Adam hears uh, God walking in the garden coming near, and he's afraid of what the consequences are going to be. So they try and hide from God, which is kind of funny when you realize that God sees everything and knows everything. Like, there's really nowhere you can hide, but they try and hide. Um, but of course, God finds them. We see that pain and sorrow enter into the world. Uh, Genesis uh, 3 puts it this way, that um, a there was a curse placed on uh, all of creation, including man and woman. And we see some things that are a result of this curse. We see broken relationships. We see no longer do God and man share this intimate, close fellowship, this friendship that they once had. We see there is an enmity put in between man and his wife, that they are no longer um, in perfect sync, that they disagree with things about things now, that um, Adam actually blames his wife for committing sin. Like, he, he made the choice himself. He didn't need to blame her. And then he blames God. Well, the woman you put me with, you know, it's your fault. You know, <laughs> tries to blame everyone but himself. 
Um, and then we also see that there's a break between uh, man and creation, that we no longer have the uh, ability to just uh, eat whatever we want, and uh, we, we find that we have to work and toil and sweat to survive and thrive. Um, life is, is no longer easy. Um, things are hard. It's difficult. It's like the world has been set up to go in opposition to us. And we see this every day still to this day. Um, work has become frustrating and often unfruitful. I know I don't have to tell you guys about this. I mean, who, who really enjoys their job every day of the week? I mean, really? Wow. Lucky you. You never get frustrated? There's never any difficulty? Okay, well, yeah. You may love your job, but it's not always easy. Yeah. And this is a result of the curse. This is the result of sin entering the world and, um, and the curse that gets placed on, on the world. Uh, again, we see that relationships are dysfunctional and no longer work the way they're supposed to be. Uh, man and wife no longer think the same. They no longer uh, agree about everything. And things are difficult and hard. And marriage, which should be a, a perfect union, is anything but. <laughs> um, ultimately, we see that death enters the world. We see this uh, very first, that God uh, clothes their nakedness by giving them animal skins. Well, animal skins don't just come off of trees. They have to come from animals. So uh, we see animals die. And then we see that God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, which is kind of a spiritual death because they no longer have that closeness with God. They are outside of God's perfect provision, outside of that close relationship, that friendship that he has. Um, and ultimately, we see that they die physically as well, and all of their offspring, and even to this day, everyone that is born will die. This is all because we chose to sin. And I know it's easy to say, well, it's Adam and Eve's fault. Why do I have to live with the consequences? Well, the, the Bible teaches us that we're all guilty because put in the same situation, we would all make the same choice. We all like to live life our way and not the way that God uh, would order it for us. We, we do our things our own way, and so we would make the same decision. But now, here in Revelation 21, Re yeah, Revelation 21, we see that everything changes. We see a new heaven and a new earth come down, from come down and uh, the old one is done away with. So we see a clean slate. And this is not just somebody taking an er eraser and wiping it off. Like, have you seen whiteboards at schools? Like, unless they've gotten out the industrial cleaner, no matter how much they wipe, they're still dirty <laughs> somewhere. Um, but that's not like this. This is a brand new, never marred, never marked, never dirtied, white, clean board. It's not just wiped away. Everything is made new. It's unstained. Sin and death are gone. We saw this again in the last sermon uh, that Dale did uh, on Revelation, that sin, death, Hades, whatever uh, terms it uses are thrown into the lake of fire, and they are done with. Uh, and we see here that God's people uh, are all gifted and adorned with righteousness. This is not righteousness of our own, but it is given to us because we are not in our, of ourselves perfectly righteous. Uh, we'll get a little bit more into that in a little bit. Um, in the beginning, we saw that there was a garden that was perfectly prepared for a couple. But here we see a giant city. Um, there, most translations will give you uh, measurements in cubits or yards. Uh, we don't know how accurate those are. We can make guesses. But uh, most 
translators would say that it's uh, something like 13, 000, yeah, 1,300 miles on one side of the city. So it, and it gives dimensions. It, this may not be literal, this may be very figurative, but it says that the city is 1,300 miles by 1,300 miles by 1,300 miles tall. That is massive. <laughs> I can't even imagine what a city that size would look like. Um, but it, we see this humongous city, why? Because there are no longer two people living there. This is all of God's people throughout all time. The billions and billions of Christians who have ever lived and followed Christ are going to live in this city with God. So a small garden is no longer going to do it. We see a city now. Um, and we see once again that God is dwelling with his people. We see this over and over again through these three chapters, that God makes his dwelling place with his people once again. That that separation that we experienced after the fall and after being kicked out of the garden is done away with. We have restored relationship with the one who created us, with the one who um, created us to love him. And not only that, but he will be a righteous king. Like, no matter how you feel about our current elected officials, whether you love them or hate them, they are not perfect. They make mistakes, some more than others. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. <laughs> um, I'm not going to get into politics, but you know, no matter what king, what president, uh, what prime minister you have, they're going to screw up. And they're not going to be perfect. They're not going to be uh, perfectly benevolent, but God will be. And he will rule justly and rightly. And then one of the awesome things, he wipes away every tear. I mean, the picture there for me is just amazing. Like, you imagine a, a little toddler coming up to uh, his or her mommy and crying because uh, they have a boo-boo, you know? And you just imagine mother wiping away the tear with her thumb, kissing him and making it all better. It's, it's a beautiful picture. Everything that pains us and causes us to suffer and have sorrow and mourning is gone because it all goes away with the, the old creation. There is now no more death, no mourning, no sorrow, no more shame. The curse is gone. The old world and everything with it is gone. All the sin, all the brokenness, no more frustration, no more striving, no more fruitlessness, no more broken relationships, no more fear. Perfect harmony, perfect unity. We have no way of really truly comprehending what this looks like because there's so much brokenness around us everywhere we look. Our place in the family of God will be set and will never change again. God has adopted us now and forever, and we will live with him in paradise. So I'm going to read, read a quote from Lord of the Rings. Sorry, I'm a nerd. I love it. But um, I'm going to give you a little bit of context for those who may not have read it or may not be as familiar with it. So the story as a whole, Frodo and Sam, uh, they're two little hobbits, little short guys like this, and they go on this mission to save the world. They have this uh, magical ring that uh, is basically uh, the superpower of the world. It's like a, a nuclear bomb times a thousand, you know. Um, it, it gives evil its power and allows it to live. And so they go on this long journey to try and destroy this ring. Um, and, uh, but in the middle of the journey, things go terribly wrong. They watch as the, the leader of their group, Gandalf, uh, he falls into darkness, battling a great monster. And it is clear from the scene that uh, Gandalf is sacrificing himself to save the lives of everyone else so that they can escape. 
Much later at the end of the story, after destroying the one ring and the evil necromancer is dead and his power and immortality are gone, Sam and Frodo are rescued and they're brought back to safety. And uh, their quest now over, they begin seeing the old friends from the party that they started out with one by one uh, coming back, uh, all these familiar faces uh, being re reunited. And to their surprise, Gandalf, their long dead leader, shows up. And so this is the quote. Uh, upon Sam seeing Gandalf for the first time. But Sam lay back and started with an open mouth. And for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or water in a parched land. And he listened. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter. The pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. He himself burst into tears. Then as sweet rain will pass down, a wind of spring and sun will shine out the clearer. His tears ceased, and his laughter welled up, and laughing, he sprang from the bed. How do I feel, he cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, and he waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter, and sun on the leaves, and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. That is from uh, The Return of the King towards the end of the book. Um, what an amazing picture. Uh, Tolkien was, uh, was a Christian, um, and I do believe that he is inspired by what we see of the new heaven and new earth here. I love the question, is everything sad going to become untrue? And that's what we see. Everything that was sad is done away with, and we have a new heaven and a new earth, and everything that is right and true comes to fruition. Now, we have a lot of misconceptions about what heaven will be like. There are lots of pictures of people sitting on clouds with angel wings, playing harps all day. No offense to all those artists, but that sounds kind of boring to me. <laughs> I'm sure there's some joy to be had in that, but, but instead, that's not the picture we get. We get a picture of heaven and earth being reunited. No longer separated, God will bring heaven, his dwelling place, to earth. We see the great city coming out of heaven, and God will dwell there among his people. Not only that, but we see that we have bodies that do not age. There's a great passage in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm not going to read it right now, but um, it talks about what our new bodies will be like and how we will no longer uh, suffer, we will no longer age, we will no longer be subject to death of any kind. We won't get sick, we won't get weary, we won't die. That alone is amazing. <laughs> Um, but we will live in a great city where all of God's people will live together in perfect harmony and peace and joy. There will be gardens and music and art and work, but not work like we know it. We, when we think of work, we think of frustration, we think of exhaustion, we, we think of futility and pointlessness, we think of getting up too early, we think of stress, we think of exhaustion, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes we have joy with work, but it's not always easy. 
But work in heaven will be different because the curse will be gone. It will be meaningful. It will be creative. It will be joyful. It will be beautiful. In heaven, there will be no repairmen. There will be craftsmen. Because things won't break. Things won't get worn out. Could you imagine driving a car forever and not having it break down? (laughs) I see that hand. (laughs) That alone, I mean, the ability to create something new and have it last forever and be beautiful. I mean, I'm not a homeowner, but I know what homeowners go through. (laughs) Things are always breaking. There's always something to repair. There's always something that needs fixing or grass always needs cutting, or there's always something, always something. But our perfect heaven, our perfect home in heaven will not be like that. Heaven sounds pretty great. So then that brings us to our second question. Who goes to heaven? If we go back and read in uh, verses 6 and 7, uh, Revelation 21, verses 6 and 7, it says, I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life, The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Later on in the same chapter, in verse 27, it says, it says of the city, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. So a little bit of translation. The the first person, the first Um, thing that we see about people who go to heaven is that it's those that are thirsty for living water. Now, what exactly does that mean? Have you ever uh, had a cold glass of water clean and purified after a long, hard workout when you're sweaty? It tastes pretty good, doesn't it? Generally? Yeah. What about a room temperature bottle of water that you drink because you're supposed to drink water? Not quite as tasty, right? Which one is more satisfying? Which one is more enjoyable? The, the truth is, ultimately, everybody needs God, just like everybody needs water to survive. You know, we have to drink water or we're not going to live. But to those who are thirsty, to those who need the water desperately, those who truly desire God, eternal life will be sweet and wonderful. But to those who would rather live life on their own terms, to those who reject Christ, to those who love the darkness, living water will taste pretty nasty. Living forever with God would not be tolerable. You would not want to live there. So the second thing we see is the one who overcomes. Now, in some translations, uh, it says conquers. Uh, That's what it says here in verse 7. Of uh, This is the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. Other translations say the one who overcomes. Um, we're going to do a little bit of talk about what that word means, uh, because conquer sounds a little bit like warfare and like taking over the world, but that's not what it's talking about. It's a Greek word. If you go back to the original text, it's a Greek word, uh, nikao, um, and it means to subdue, either literally or figuratively figuratively, to conquer, overcome, prevail, to get the victory. It's the same Greek word where we get Nike, victory. Nike was the the goddess of victory, and that's why the shoe company decided to go with Nike, because they wanted to be the company of victory. 
We also see this, uh, this word a few times throughout the New Testament. Uh, but if you remember back when we read through the letters to the churches in Asia at the beginning of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, that word shows up in every single letter to every church. Some translations say to the one who overcomes. Some say to the one who conquers. But it's always talking about to the ones who uh, live through the world and its temptations and its, uh, and its beatings, essentially, and uh, stay fast to the faith. And every single letter has a promise associated with it. To the one who overcomes, to the one who stays faithful, to the one who conquers the world and its system of sin and depravity. Uh, God promises a lot of different things. And that's why he uses the same word here, because it's the same promise. The one who overcomes, the one who does not submit to the world and its desires is the one who overcomes. The word nikao in Greek is also found in a few other places in the New Testament, but it's mostly in 1 John and Revelation. I think 1 John chapter 5 sheds a little bit on sheds a little bit of light on what it means to conquer. In 1 John chapter 5, through verses 3 through 5, it says this, For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commandments are not a burden, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world? But the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Then it skips down, then I'm going to skip down to verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has, the testi- has this testimony within himself. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son does not have life. So we overcome or we conquer the world by believing in Jesus, by placing his tr- our trust in him, that by our faith, his victory over the world becomes our victory over the world. He died on the cross to make us uh, clean, to pay the debt of our sins uh, for our evil, for our wrongness. He paid the debt we owed, the one that we could never repay, taking our sins upon himself and giving us his righteousness. And then we come to the third one, the one who is clean, those who are clean, those who are without sin. And we see this in verse 8 of Revelation 21. It says, But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Back in, in uh, verse 27 again, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's a pretty harsh warning. I got to admit, I read through that list, and there are a few others in, in the New Testament that are lists of, of sins, and you know, I have to admit that I checked the box on several. One of them in particular, Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, 
selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Time and time again, Scripture warns us of these things because these are the things that keep us out of God's presence. And God will not tolerate any of it in his kingdom. For if sin, if wickedness were in his kingdom, no matter how small or large, then we see the result from Adam and Eve. When they sinned, fear entered the world, shame entered the world, pain entered the world, death entered the world. If God were to let sin into his kingdom, heaven would not be heaven anymore. So God cannot tolerate any of it. And the, the testimony of Scripture is this, that we all are guilty. We may not have checked off every single box on that list, but we've all checked at least one. And most of us have checked several of them. So how can any of us go to heaven? That brings us to our third question. How do I get to heaven? The short answer, be perfect. <laughs> never sin, never lie, never cheat, never steal, never hate. But there's the problem. We've all done those things. It's not possible for us to do those things, to be perfect and sinless on our own. Romans 3 backs this up, verses 10 through 12. It says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Sounds pretty harsh. Isaiah chapter 53 puts it this way. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We all choose to live apart from God because we'd rather do it our way. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has broken God's law. You might say, well, I'm pretty good. You know, I've never killed anybody. I've never murdered anybody. I've, I just repeated myself. Um, I've never committed adultery. You know, I've never really stolen anything of significance, you know. But compared to God's righteousness and God's standards, for heaven to be heaven, even a little lie cannot exist. Even a little hatred, even a little selfishness cannot exist. We've all done something we knew was wrong. We've worshipped, we've worshipped power, money, sex, um, comfort. We've worshipped and served these things rather than worshipping and serving the God of the universe. With even a little bit of that, heaven would not be heaven. But the good news is that God has made a way. He's made a way for us to be cleansed and purified from our sins. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14 tells us a bit about what that looks like. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. See there, it's admitting that we need cleansing. It's not just pushing the dust under the rug. It's not hiding it. 
It says we need cleansing, but there is a way. It's only by repenting of our sins. Now, repenting is a word that gets thrown around a lot, and I don't know if everybody understands it. So repenting is, I'm going one direction, and I realize, no, this is not the right way. So I turn around 180 degrees and say, no, this is the right way. I'm going this way. So we're all in our natural state. We're all going the wrong way. We're living life to what pleases us, to what makes us happy. Um, And that doesn't always conflict with what makes God happy, but... We do it in absence of what God says is right. So we have to confess. We have to repent. We have to turn from that way and say, no, I need to live God's way. By repenting of our sins and then trusting that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to cleanse us and make us holy before God. And then pursuing a life of righteousness and holiness. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect once we have Christ in our life. We're all still going to stumble and fall and make mistakes. But God's grace is sufficient. It's far and wide enough to cover. The important thing is that we try, that we seek God, that we earnestly desire to live with him, even now. So my question is, in reading this, what do you believe? When you read the book of Revelation, what does it sound like to you? Do you hear a fairy tale? It's easy to, to, to read that. There's a lot of metaphorical language. There's a lot of imagery we don't understand. It would be very easy to come away and think of this as a fairy tale. Do you, does it seem like it's just a, a good moral story meant to scare us into doing what's good? Is that what, what, what we believe about it? Or do you really trust that Jesus is one day going to come back and rescue his people? That he will literally bring heaven to earth? and dwell among us, and that we will enjoy the richness of his presence forever. The interesting thing is that we believe that this book, although human hands wrote it down, we believe that it was written by God. And from God's perspective, he is outside of this universe. He's outside of time. Everything that has happened, will happen, is happening right now. God already knows about it. From God's perspective, everything in Revelation has already happened. He can look at it like a photo book and say, oh, that's where I came down, and that's where I brought the city down, and this is where uh, I had the, the throne of judgment. So God being the author, we know that this is true. We know that it is true because time and time again, when you read Scripture, God says something will happen, and it happens. There are prophecies and prophecies about Christ coming to earth. Some of them we have actually found that predate Uh, Christ living on earth. So we know that these were written before Christ was was on the earth. So God has once, sorry, over and over God has been proved faithful and true. And so when God says that these things are going to come to pass, whether it's tomorrow or next year or in a thousand years, you can believe it will happen just like you believe the sun will rise again. We may not understand exactly what it looks like because there's a lot of confusing language, but Trust me when I say you can, you can believe this. You can take it to the bank. So if you say you believe, do you actually live as if it's true? Or when life gets hard, do you give up on pursuing holiness, on pursuing righteousness? Or are you, per- pers- are you persevering through life when it throws curveballs your way? 
Are you saying, no, I'm not going to take the easy way. I'm going to take God's way. What about your friends and relatives and neighbors and those who don't know Jesus? Have you shared the hope that you have of eternal life? Or are you just quietly letting them walk a path of destruction? Now, there is an art and um, a way to do it that's not being a jerk. <laughs> um, there is a way to do it that says, I love you and I want the best for you. And I know that heaven is going to be awesome and I want to see you there. Rather than, yeah, I'm not going to go into it. <laughs> there have been a lot of examples of people being jerks about uh, throwing people's sin in their face and shouting at them. And that's not what we want to do because you don't want to see that person in heaven. <laughs> Maybe I overstepped that a little bit. <laughs> we, we would want to see a perfected version of them in heaven. <laughs> um, do you live life as if living with Christ is a sweet and precious thing that motivates and informs the way you live? Does it change the way you see the world around you? Do you really believe that the house you own is temporary? Do you really believe that the job you have is temporary? These are all good things to have, and I'm not saying get rid of them, but don't make them into an idol. Don't put them at the center of your life. Um, so in closing, um, I'm going to quote something here. Uh, the band can come back up if they would like. Um, so recently I've been listening to some old music that I listened to in college. Um, and it's been kind of a nostalgic trip for me. And one song in particular, um, it's from a group called Cross Movement. Um, and they have a song called Cry No More that has really been speaking to me as I've been studying Revelation. And I'm not going to quote the whole song, uh, but I would like to share some of it with you. Uh, but first I would like to apologize because they are a rap group and I am white upon white and I cannot rap, so... <laughs> I'm pretty sure Weird Al's Weird Al Yankovic's song "White and Nerdy" was written about me. So um, I will try and read this, but I cannot flow like they flow. So this is from the song "Cry No More." There's coming a day that'll be much better than now. No more hurts. No more work by the sweat of your brow. No more drunk drivers driving all out of control. No more flats and being stuck on the side of the road. Believe me. No more turning on the TV, seeing kids say, for the price of coffee, you can feed me. In fact, no more anthrax in the mail, no jail, no blizzards, no twisters, no hail. It'll be the end of rain and the end of planes being hijacked and flown into window panes. It'll be nice just to imagine a world that'll be righteous. No more Middle East crisis. No more drugs. No more thugs and pimps. No more beatdowns. Beat no more getting mugged for Tim's. No need for ramps, because no need for wheelchairs. No need for weaves, because you'll feel your real hair. <laughs> One day I won't cry no more. Can't wait for the day when people won't die no more. Daddies won't say bye no more. Lie no more. In the streets, bullets won't fly no more. Won't feel no pain no more. Won't have to push, pull, won't have to strain no more. Won't have to walk lame no more. Won't have to play the game no more. One day, when this life is over, we're going to live forever together with our King. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word in Revelation. God, we just pray that in this moment, you would uh, speak to our hearts 
For those of us that know you, that love you, that have relationship with you, would you assure us once again that these things are true, that we have a hope that is everlasting and will not end. God, if there's anyone who does not have a relationship with you or is unsure, God, would you reveal yourself to them? Would they know you as loving and righteous and pure and that, God, you desire to have relationship with them for all eternity, that you want to see them in heaven? God, if there is anyone in this room right now, God, would you help them to repent? Would you help them to turn away from their sins? God, help us all to return away from our sins. We all still struggle. We all still need you. We all still need righteousness in our lives. Help us to be more and more like Christ every day. God, here in this moment, we're going to take a moment of silence and God, let us confess to you all the ways in which we are broken, the ways in which we are full of sin and need your righteousness. God, we come before you and we confess that we are all sinful people. We all struggle with, um, with hatred, with, uh, with selfishness, with pride. We, we struggle with our relationships with one another and treating one another justly. We lack humility. We lack righteousness. But God, your arms are wide enough. Christ on the cross was big enough to cover all the sins of the world we know and we trust that you made that sacrifice on our behalf. And we trust that when your word tells us that you are faithful and just and that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that it is true. That as we repent and seek to follow you, you see us as clean and pure and holy. And one day we will get to enter that city full of joy and peace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.